Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us at the podcast today. I recently had the chance to talk to a really fabulous scholar um, who's written a book I'm really excited about, and that is Elizabeth Wilson, um, with whom I talked about her new book, Gut Feminism. This came out with Duke University Press in 2015. Now, this is a book, um, as you'll hear in a few moments, that really kind of remakes what we think about when we think about and with biology. It's going to argue for a way of putting biological data into conversation with feminist theory in what I think is a really, really productive and interesting way. It also makes a case for um, what it calls the necessary place of aggression or bile in feminist theory. Feminist politics, um, as the book states, are most effective not when they transform the destructive into the productive, but when they're able to tolerate their own capacity for harm. So this is a book that also um, kind of engages these sensibilities and these ways of thinking about and with uh, aggression and biology with um, a really interesting study of contemporary pharmaceuticals and debates around pharmaceuticals, especially as they have been used um, to treat depression. So it's a fascinating study um, for those absolutely who are interested in the intersection between STS and feminist theory. It's particularly interesting if you are um, someone who likes to learn and read and think about pharmaceuticals, depression, um, psychoanalysis, but it's also just a really rich um, conceptual and methodological toolbox for thinking with and across duality and biology and um, for thinking about their productive ways that objects are constituted by and are created by their relations and their relationalities, objects like biology, objects like mind, objects like pills. So with that, I'll leave you to the conversation. It was such a pleasure um, to talk with Elizabeth about the book, and I really do recommend um, taking some time to get your hands on a copy of it and work your way through it. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening, and thanks for your support, as ever, of the channel. Have fun. I'm here today to talk with Elizabeth Wilson about her new book, Gut Feminism. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Elizabeth, and thanks so much, really not just for making time to talk with me today, but also for writing a book that I really, really love um, and think is really, really important. Um, so thank you, and I'm really looking forward to this. I'm really excited about this conversation. Thank you, Carla. It's lovely to be here. So let's start out, as is traditional for the channel, um, by talking a little bit about how you came to the field and specifically what brought you to kind of the intersection between science studies and feminist theory? Well, I think probably the easiest way to answer that is to go back a little bit to my graduate training. Um, when I was doing my PhD research, this was at the University of Sydney um, in the early 1990s, uh, feminist theories of the body were a major concern. A lot of the texts that were coming out, a lot of the conversations that we were having, uh, a lot of the work that we were reading, the work that we were excited about, was broadly speaking feminist theories of the body. Um, mm-hmm. So I found myself, I had come out of a very traditional psychological 
background. I had a very traditional empirical training as an undergraduate. So I find myself in these very galvanizing, very, very interesting theoretical conceptual discussions, thinking somewhat old-fashioned and empirical thoughts that the body that everyone seemed to be talking about didn't really seem to be the body that I understood. So a lot of it was um, representations of the body, literary tropes in relation to the body, this kind of thing. And I, I had been trained to think in much more biological and empirical terms about the body. So I would be thinking, well, what about the lungs? Mm-hmm. What about how blood pressure works? What about how the brain works? Um, and so for me, that became the central problematic is how to think that scientific material and that scientific data and that scientific training, so that way of thinking scientifically, with this immensely interesting, galvanizing feminist work. Um, so mm-hmm. actually, I mean, you see a lot of that kind of tension being talked about now under the rubric of new feminist materialisms. But, you know, this was this has been a live question for a lot of people for much longer than, than you know, let's say the last five or ten years. Um, so it was at this point, I guess, that I became completely um, pulled into this whole conceptual universe of feminist theory, particularly psychoanalytic theory, and I guess – We'll talk more about that later. Um, but psychoanalysis was a really huge component of that for me. So there was all of that going on. So it's me trying to marry um, my empirical training with this new, for me, new theoretical work. So that, that's the one thing that was going on. The other thing that was going on was that because I was trained in psychology, um, I remained very interested in questions about mind or questions about the psyche, uh, which in those days was often glossed as subjectivity, but I'm not exactly sure that subjectivity is the same thing as mind, um, that different kinds of things were at stake depending on where you started. So psychology for me is kind of a first love. I mean, it's somewhat unrequited. I'm not really sure that, <laughs> that the discipline loves me as much as I love it. But the questions that it asks to me are very interesting it stumbles around a little bit in terms of its methods about how it can answer them. So this this book is that balance between, on the one hand, thinking feminist theory, thinking about it in relation to the body, and trying to think about mind in the same way, and doing all of this in a way that doesn't sell empirical data or scientific data short in order to make a strong conceptual claim. Great. Thank you so much. And this actually really nicely brings us into um, the kind of the question about the genesis of this particular topic and this particular way into these larger themes that you're talking about. So I'll say, I'll say just a little bit for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to um, see the book, to read the book about what's going on in just kind of broad uh, stroke terms um, and then uh, kind of open it back up to you. So the mm-hmm. book itself, it's called Gut Feminism, right, as we've seen. And in the introduction, the book lays out two major ambitions, um, and these are largely in the words of the book. It seeks, um, again, in the words of the book, some feminist theoretical gain in relation to how biological data can be used to think about minded and bodily states. What conceptual innovations would be possible, it asks, if feminist theory wasn't so instinctively 
anti-biological. And we'll talk about that. The mm-hmm. second major ambition that it lays out um, for listeners, it seeks, um, again, in the words of the book, some feminist theoretical gain in relation to thinking about the hostility that's intrinsic to our politics. So the theme of hostility and aggression is going to be another really important trope throughout the book. So the book is going to argue that biological data can contribute to feminist theory in really, really interesting ways, and it focuses on what it calls the neurological periphery, the enteric nervous system that encases the gut. It argues, um, and this is um, where I'll wrap up, Um, here, that the neurological is not synonymous with the cerebral. The gut is an organ of the mind. So, Elizabeth, what brought you to this particular focus in the book? How did you come to think with the gut as a central part of these larger phenomena you were talking about? Um, There's actually a very precise answer to that, and it's, it's, it's around what had happened at the end of the prior book. Um, that was talking about feminism and neuroscience. And somewhere very late in that process, I think perhaps the last chapter that I wrote for that book, I stumbled across this this piece of data, this datum, I guess, that the vast majority of serotonin in the human body is not in the brain, it's actually in the enteric nervous system. And the, the enteric nervous system is this huge network of nerves that encases the gut, particularly the stomach. Uh, it's it's part of the, technically part of the peripheral nervous system. So that datum kind of got a grip on me. And I wrote about it in the prior book, but, but kind of really only in passing. And so it didn't, really, it didn't really let me go. And so I found myself more and more interested in what are the psychological consequences of thinking quite seriously about serotonin in the gut. So that question only makes sense in a bigger cultural environment where we have the rise of uh, antidepressants that work on the serotonin system. So serotonin in the gut per se, I mean, there's there's a lot of neurotransmitters in the gut and the brain and so on and so forth, but we are living in a cultural moment where uh, serotonin-selective reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, Prozac being the first of them, um, are widely circulated as, me- as medications, are widely circulated as metaphors, they're widely circulated as a set of anxieties about culture. So how how is all of that, how do we think all of that differently if we think about the serotonin not in the brain, which I think is where most of us instinctively go, um, but think of it in terms of the gut. Uh, so the mainstream psychiatric literatures, the biomedical literatures, but also the feminist and science and technology studies literatures that critique, say, psychiatry, all of those literatures, both the critical and the conventional ones, all presume that we're talking about the brain mm-hmm. the, and that we're talking about serotonin in the brain. But if you start thinking about where serotonin is and how an antidepressant of this kind actually works, then suddenly mind is dispersed through the body in very interesting kinds of ways. And the first part of the book really explores um, some of the really fascinating um, kind of ways into this problem and into this series of issues. So the first chapter explores this idea of the gut as minded. Um, You talk about the gut as ruminating, and it thinks about or it asks readers to think about ingestion, peristalsis, digestion, and vomiting as part of the psychic landscape. Now, 
it takes us into, I think, and this is one of the things that I'm really excited about, about the book. Um, it really asks us to think about what we're thinking about when we think biology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so this first chapter is making the point that contemporary feminist texts have a certain attitude toward biology in common, right? It's a specifically a repudiation of biological explanation. And the chapter is going to argue um, for a way of, as it puts it, thinking biology otherwise, showing that there's no, in the words of the book, intrinsic orthodoxy to biological matter. It's as perverse and wayward as other kinds of um, ways of knowing, sociological, social, cultural, historical. So in order to do this, you take us into the work of some um, really important uh, uh, authors and uh, theorists, and one of the um, bodies of work that you take us into is the work of Melanie Klein. Mm-hmm. So let's start here. How does the work of Melanie Klein help us understand um, anatomy um, in a different way and the ways that anatomy might work in the service of feminist theory? Okay, so so let me go back a couple of steps to, mm-hmm. to what you what you started with there because it's 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 uh, I, th- I think it, I need to say this in this order in order to get to Klein. So if I'm starting with this weird problematic of serotonin in the gut and mind in the gut, then what I have to do, which is what you just pointed to, is I have to clear some feminist ground. Because if feminist theory has been so routinely anti-biological, it's very hard. Remember, this book started 10 years ago. So these days, people talk about feminism and biology, so it's all completely routine. But when this started 10 years ago, there wasn't a lot of that in circulation. So I had to really clear some feminist theory ground to say, what's at stake for us, for, for feminists, um, if we're going to look at this biological data more clearly? And there's a, there's a really tricky set of conceptual problems in there, I think, because feminism seems to have found its way to its prominence and to its strength through thinking antibiologically. So if you take that antibiologism away from feminist theory, what have you done? Have you kind of broken it? Have you have you made it uh, less able to engage the world? So that in itself is really interesting. So this first chapter is trying to clear that ground without simply being negative in this in the sense of just saying what's wrong. So Klein comes in, Melanie Klein comes in as somebody who enables me to think about the conjunction of the body and biology and feminist politics in a positive vein, if that makes sense. So I don't know, maybe not everyone knows who Melanie Klein is. She was a, she was, (laughs) it's assumed that they don't. So she's a psychoanalyst of um, originally Hungarian extraction who moves from Budapest to Berlin and then London. And she, arrives in London in the 1920s and stays there until she dies um, uh, in the 1960s, I think. And she becomes massively influential. Uh, So she's doing a lot of very interesting work in psychoanalytic theory before Freud dies. Freud dies in 1939. So there's quite a lot of tension between what gets called the London School and the Viennese School. The Viennese people, of course, ended up in London once we have the outbreak of the Second World War. Um, 
So Melanie Klein, by the time Freud and his family turned up in 1938 in London, Klein has really uh, entrenched herself in the London scene, and the London scene is, to a certain extent, Kleinian. Uh, she's a child analyst. So most of her data, she sees adult patients, but she also sees ch child patients. So she's the beginning of the emergence of child analysis. Uh, a lot of her data is coming from the completely strange, galvanizing fantasy world of very young children. So Melanie Klein is interesting for me uh, in all of this because part of what comes out of this work that's sometimes very unconventional but always very interesting is a theory of the body as fantastic. <laughs> the, the, the way in which the body works is at its root fantastic in the sense of um, motivated by fantasy. So you don't, in Klein, you don't have a body, a pre-existing body that is overwritten by fantasy or overwritten by psychological events or overwritten by, say, traumas in childhood, that the body itself operates through fantastic motivation. And I don't know how clear that is. So she gets... She gets a lot of this from one of her analysts, one of Freud's contemporaries called Sandor Ferenczi, who had a completely wild theory of biology as motivated at its root by the unconscious. Um, well, let's talk about him. Because yeah. This also really nicely takes us into chapter two, just to kind of map this out for listeners um, who are mm -hmm. kind of following along. So Ferenczi's work is really the focus of this chapter, right? Mm -hmm. So how does he come in and, and what's so kind of wild about what he's doing? Well, Ferenczi is fantastic and it's, it's a little surprising to me that Ferenczi hasn't been used a little more in scholarly um, contexts. He's used a lot these days in clinical contexts. He um, was a great but controversial uh, innovator in relation to technique, like how do you actually conduct an analysis. So, for example, for people who are not aware of his work, one of the things he suggested was that with very particular kinds of patients, very disturbed patients, you might actually want to swap um, the positions of the analyst and the analysand. So maybe in the first hour, it's a traditional setup. The patient is on the couch and the analyst is in the chair. And then maybe you have a second hour where you swap those positions around and the analyst is on the couch and the patient is in the chair. So he had these wild experiments with technique that at the time were controversial, that remained controversial for some time, um, but have recently been picked up very smartly by contemporary psychoanalytic um, clinicians. So again, but like Klein, as part of all of this wild, um, strange interest in fantasy, he has a very galvanizing theory of the body. And he wants to say that in the same way that you can't think of mind apart from the unconscious, you can't think of the body apart from the unconscious. So the body has a primitive set of motivations that we might broadly call psychic or mental. So there isn't biology separate from mind and there isn't mind separate from biology, but there is a body that, especially when broken down under trauma, is shown to be fantastic. Does that 
It's, ho- it's, it's, yeah. it's, so, it's so odd. I'm not sure that it makes sense without an enormous amount of explanation. Of like, but the, the oddity of it is kind of the point, right? I mean, one of the things at least that comes out for me as a reader, and one of the reasons this is so exciting, and, and I genuinely mean that, I'm not being hyperbolic here, is that this is... Um, you know, through Klein's work, through Ferenczi's work, this is a way of understanding the anatomy in a completely strange way that also kind of makes it, it, it makes it possible to think anatomy as strange, even in cases and even in circumstances that are not pathological. Yes, exactly. And so for me, the, the strangeness of anatomy, and we think of anatomy usually as a very routine, objective easily delineated set of materials. Um, but what's interesting in the Ferenczi and in the Klein is that anatomy is suddenly strange material um, that does strange things that are psychic. So for me, and this is where I think I stand differently from a lot of the new feminist materialisms, is that you you have to have a theory of mind in there somewhere. So you can't animate materiality. You can't think of materiality as um, vibrant, as volatile, to use some of the words from like canonical feminist texts on this, without having a theory of mind in there for me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and psychoanalysis is the, is the way to do that for me. So the chapter, um, and chapter two in particular, really helpfully shows us the, the genealogy or a genealogy of Ferenczi's notions um, through engagement with, for example, Freud's ideas of conversion hysteria. And you talk mm-hmm. about the Dora case study, right? And Dora's mm-hmm. coughing. Um, mm-hmm. You take us into uh, a, it sounds like a really fascinating book, Thalassa or Thalassa, right? Where he's mm-hmm. thinking biology differently. But mm-hmm. for listeners, perhaps um, it will be really useful to see um, what this could mean in practice. So, okay, Carla, Elizabeth, you've talked about how this is fantastic. I, I want to see how that works, right? And the book does this really helpfully by using a case study. Mm-hmm. You bring us into um, uh, the case of bulimia as a case in point for really understanding, okay, practically speaking, what could it look like to take some of this strangeness of anatomy and actually use it to understand um, a very particular case? So can you talk us briefly through um, really kind of the, the, the consequences of these strange ideas? Or, and I use strange and not as a term of like judgment, right? But mm-hmm. sort of the, yeah. the anatomical, yeah. um, in this case of bulimia. Yeah, so um, bulimia, I think, is a really good example of the fantasy of the the, the the fantasy that is biology coming alive and becoming visible to um, biomedical intervention. So, one of the things that's uh, particular about bulimia and which makes bulimia very hard to treat is that once the symptoms are up and running. Um, it's it's pretty hard to intervene and, and get those symptoms back under control. So it's it's very resistant to treatment. And there's been a lot of many different kinds of attempts to intervene, and most of them intervene at the level of the cognitive. What is this particular person, usually a young woman, what is she thinking? How has her thinking kind of got astray? And how do we get her back on the straight and narrow in relation to her feelings and to in, in relation to how she eats and how she chooses not to eat. Uh, so someone who goes in for treatment, standard treatment for bulimia, is going to hit those kind of very cognitive methodologies. But once you start looking 
at both uh, biomedical data, like just the experimentations around antidepressants and how to tr- you can treat bulimia through antidepressants. Um, and when you start looking at some of the biographical data, people have written memoirs about this. What you start to see is data that suggests that the body is alive and speaking, if you like, to use that, that metaphor in a particular kind of way, and that to treat bulimia as if it's simply the body under the sway of bad cognition mm-hmm. or cognition that needs to be altered or even just to say the same thing in psychoanalytic terms, to think that the body is in the grip of um, toxic fantasies is to treat the body as too passive to the inscription of mind. So if we think of the body as itself a minded substrate trying to articulate some part of this person's distress, some part of this person's anger, um, I think we have a much more coherent account of what's going on. And my, my, my punt, my thesis would be that you would have a treatment that would intervene in, in a different kind of way. Now, I'm not trying to say that the treatment would therefore be successful in the ways that others would not be, right? So some of those cognitive treatments are very successful. Um, but there's a really narrow set of methodologies about how to intervene clinically into something like this. Um, I mean, I don't talk a lot in the book about that kind of thing because that's a whole different way, that's a whole different avenue into the problem. But conceptually, feminists tend to think of bulimia as a symptom of cultural distress rather than as the body itself trying to figure stuff out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that the book does repeatedly in this section, but also I think really in all the sections, is to break down this idea that there is a kind of dichotomy between biology and you know, culture, right? Or biology and um, the, the cognitive, or biology and like uh, society. And really show, and, and, and a key word that comes up again and again is entanglement, right? Mm-hmm. The kind of mm-hmm. entangled mm-hmm. nature of these. And we'll get to some of those consequences and, and some other cases that really work this out in interesting ways in the chapters to come. Yep. So, um, but you mentioned the sort of the speaking of the body, right? Mm-hmm. And you do, this also really nicely takes us into the next chapter. So thank mm-hmm. you for that, mm-hmm. um, where you talk about organ speech and the idea of a kind of bodily utterance or the, the mm-hmm. possibility of thinking in terms of um, bodily utterance in the sense of um, the performative language of John, of J.L. Austin. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and this is this happens in the context of a chapter that explores another really key theme in the book, and this is something that um, I, I mentioned very early on, and this is the theme of uh, kind of bitterness, aggression, mm-hmm. hostility. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you talk here about the ne- the necessary place for hostility and aggression in feminist theory. I think the book here says in this chapter, calls for a reparative approach to reading cannot be calls to do away with bad objects or hostility. Mm-hmm. So can you speak to that? Why, um, first off, why is it important um, to make that point right now? So this is the other half of uh, Melanie Klein, right, is that not only was she interested in children and in these uh, strange early fantasies, most of those fantasies for Klein were, aggressive, were about aggression um, and about 
the child's fear of its own aggression and the fear of aggression coming back to it from uh, usually the mother, but from the world in general. So the aggression is there. The aggression, so, so by that strict psychoanalytic account, there's no doing away with aggression. Aggression is at the core of how um, humans work. Uh, why is it necessary for feminism? I think feminist theory and feminist politics more broadly is very interested in trying to make things better. You know that its politics have been reparative would be a more contemporary word for it, but ameliorative, very much interested in I see injustice, how do I stop it, how do I fix it, how do I ameliorate it in some way. One of the consequences of this is that it tends to position the feminist actor, the, the agent of feminism, as a person who does good. And, you know, you don't have to have been very alive <laughs> or very, you don't have to have been alive for very long. You don't have to have spent much time in feminist circles to know that tension, aggression, burnout, anger, not against bad things, but against ourselves is very, very common, right? So anybody who's um, been an activist knows that, that dealing with aggression internal to the group is really important. So what I wanted to extract here was, uh, I don't know, what's a good way to put this, a little bit more honesty politically about who we are and how we proceed, um, which is, again, not to suggest that if we could all just... I don't know, in a Southern California way, you know, <laughs> acknowledge our anger and move on, we would return to a, to a better place. It's, it's much, my, my argument's much more Kleinian than that, that the aggression is, cannot be eradicated. So how do you live with it? <laughs> you know, so how do you, how do you not let it act through you? How do you not act it out? Um, and when you do act it out, how do you make some kind of repair to the damage that you've done? Um, and how do you move on knowing that you are not always going to act well? Um, and I think there's been an enormous amount of pressure in feminist and let's say also queer politics that we should all be behaving as well as we possibly can. Um, we should all be um, we should all be agreed about what our ideal worlds are and how to get there. Now I find that a little I find that a little creepy <laughs> because my guess is that my ideal world kind of doesn't really look like yours. Mm -hmm. It might, and there might be large amounts of overlap between what I would like politically and what you would like politically. Um, and, you know, all for the best, but there's, there's never going to be a consensus about how to proceed, how to proceed well, and there's never going to be a way of proceeding that doesn't, in some ways, exclude or damage or do a violence. And I think if feminism proceeds as if I can knowingly, consciously, rationally minimise my violence, then it's deluded about how it's both how it's working and also how it can be most effective. How does this help us understand anatomy? Um, and you have a particular example here, right? You sort of, mm -hmm. this conversation um, in this chapter informs and is informed by a particular um, example or a particular case of a um, state that uh, features the repeated regurgitation, right. re-chewing, right? Yeah. Re yeah. Maricism, mm -hmm. is that 
how you pronounce it? I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Let's, let's, go, let's go with Miracle. <laughs> let's go with that. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? How does that kind of relate to um, what we've been talking about? So this this middle chapter is, is trying to think about depression differently from the common feminist trope that it is anger turned inwards. Mm-hmm. Um, so what if we thought of depression n- not as... Uh, anger turned inwards, but anger turned outwards. That it's that it, that it's that depression is an attempt to wreak havoc on the world, to do damage, to and to um, uh, to to not ameliorate, but in, in some respects to make things worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Mericism is this wonderful example of how the body is often doing exactly this. So mericism is a um, condition that used to be, they used to think it was contained only to infancy and childhood, but now seems to be found in adolescents and adults. And it's the swallowing and regurgitating of food. I I swallow, I regurgitate, I swallow, I regurgitate, I swallow, I regurgitate. Um, In in very small children, it can be very um, dangerous because I can become malnourished very quickly. Uh, in adults, less of that, but can can be the type of um, behaviour that can become very um, uh, debilitating, debilitating socially, and presumably is, is doing a bit of damage to the body on the way through. Uh, so for me. In this chapter, the miracism is an example of how the body is, is attempting to manage. It's an example of how the body is attempting to manage psychologically distressing events in the world. So one might become depressed in a very narrowly cognitive sense, that you become cognitively despondent, or you might become a, a human who whose distress is materialized through something like mericism. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not a depression in any classical sense, but it's, a, it's an example of how bad states are attempting to not get any better, but in fact to do damage on the objects around it. And the chapter, in fact, is making a really important point um, uh, around this. Um, it argues that, in a way, rather than trying to kind of get away from or um, uh, proceed away from or, or somehow um, overcome hostility, right? To sort of mm-hmm. see that, uh, to see the moving away from hostility um, as the goal, um, the chapter makes the point that the politics of depression in the words of the book, would benefit from more attention to the hostility generated by us and mm-hmm. directed at the things we love, right? The yeah. loved objects, loved ideas, yeah. loved places. And so it's also it's actually a really important point that I think is both local to the case studies um, that you're talking about here, but also um, potentially much more broadly um, applicable to lots of ways of thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. So so more broadly, we we... We feminists, we on the left, um, we tend to think of people who have been um, the object of denigration, the object of discrimination, the object of violence. We tend to think of those people as somewhat innocent. 
yeah, we tend not to think of these people as also invested in and part of the discrimination and the violence that is the world, right, according to this Kleinian logic. So we tend to divide our world politically into devils and angels. I mean, I, I, I'm not using any theological language in the book, but we, we, we tend to bifurcate far too strongly between people who do wrong and people who are the objects of uh, that that. Uh, violent behavior or systems that are discriminatory and systems that are more liberatory. And I just don't think this is a very good account of how the world actually works, that the people, it's a much more sophisticated political position to be able to think that the people most crushed by systems of discrimination and denigration are also part of those systems rather than separate from them. And that our politics need to grapple with that rather than the fantasy, I think, of a world where there will be no discriminations, where there will be no violences, or a fantasy where we can protect some people from those violences or from those discriminations. Right. And it makes total sense when you say it that way, right? But somehow, um, somehow, I don't, I don't think we... I mean, certainly in the context of activism right now at my own institution, right? Mm -hmm. we, we just don't necessarily get that um, or, or pay attention to that explicitly. So this is a really helpful. It's, it's very, very, it's easy for me to say it, right? And I think conceptually it's kind of, it's pretty really clear. Hard to do. But, but to, actually, to actually think about, you know, my students push back on this quite a lot, complain quite a lot, like what would this mean in the world? Um, and I think people who are, who are strongly involved in activist work, they kind of know this. Mm -hmm. They kind of know what burnout is. They kind of know that your colleagues and your comrades, if you like, are often the worst people to deal with, <laughs> um, you know, and that politics has to negotiate some part of that. And uh, mm -hmm. I think we dig ourselves into a hole in terms of activism and politics if we want to think of people as separate from and innocent of the systems that discriminate against them. So as we move to the second part of the book, we move to a series of chapters that really focus in on antidepressants. Mm -hmm. The fourth chapter, um, and this is really, really interesting, this extends some of what we've been talking about um, into a particular case. So chapter four argues um, that what the book calls a logic of transference is at work in therapies that are based on antidepressant pharmaceuticals. And the mm -hmm. chapter does this um, in a really, I think, fascinating way by carefully tracking the way that antidepressant medications are metabolized in the body. And it looks at the pharmacokinetics mm -hmm. of SSRIs, which is, a, and that's an important term here, the pharmacokinetics. Now, tracking um, how drugs are ingested, absorbed, distributed, and excreted um, sort of importantly helps us think through this in a different way, and it turns our attention from the brain to the gut, from the center to the periphery. Now, you talk about, uh, well, I, well, actually, let's, um, let's kind of talk about that. Can you talk then, um, for listeners, again, who haven't had a chance to, uh, yet to read the chapter, about the importance of this tracking. So what for you is important for us to understand about pharmacokinetics that's importantly different from the way that we typically understand the workings of antidepressant pharmaceuticals? Yeah, so I think I want to extract um, 
in some respects a fairly banal point, which is uh, when you take an antidepressant, you swallow it, right? That uh, antidepressants are not injected into your brain. Um, the, the vast majority of them are ingested through the mouth, through the gut. So they go to the stomach, they then dissolve, and then they are extracted out of the gut um, into the blood, into the bloodstream. They go to the liver. The liver extracts a huge amount of the drug from 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 circulation and excretes it. Um, what's left in circulation goes to the rest of the body. Um, so these antidepressants end up everywhere. They end up in your liver, they end up in your kidneys, they end up in your skin, they end up in your lungs, and eventually they end up in your brain. Now, we tend to think that it's only when they end up in the brain that they're having any psychological effect. So I want to think about the psychological effects of that tracking. So what? So how would an antidepressant be different if it was if it didn't track through the gut and through the body in this way. I mean, can I say this is one of the reasons, this this massive dispersal of the drug through the body is one of the reasons why a lot of people in the anti-psychiatry tradition want to say stay away from antidepressants um, because they're toxic and they don't just, they're not well targeted. They kind of poison the whole body. And for that reason, we should be looking at alternative treatments for depression. They are by and large toxic substances. So the same kind of empirical data of this distribution of the drug can be read two different ways. It can be read as um, toxicity or it can be read as, for my purposes, as a dispersal of mind through through the organs, particularly the viscera of, of the body. And clearly the effects of antidepressants in the brain are crucial. I'm not trying to say it's got nothing to do with that. But I'd like us to be able to put some meat on the bones, if you like, of that and to think more carefully about mind as we're thinking about the liver and, and to not wait until we get to the brain to think about mind. Um, I feel like I wandered away from your question there a little no, bit. No, no. What, what did you say? Actually, no, that's great because this was yep. going to take us, I was going to take us into transference from here. Ah, that's great. Okay. Um, and the fact, I just want to flag because you did talk about, you did use the terms toxicity and poison. And really mm-hmm. importantly, one of the things that a later chapter, chapter six is going to do is to work with and work from the idea of the pharmacon um, from the work of Derrida to really help us think again about that dichotomy as well, right? Cure yeah. and poison mm-hmm. to sort of mm-hmm. think about the relationship. So we'll get there in a few moments. But mm-hmm. first, transference. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned in this chapter, given what you've just um, very helpfully described about sort of tracking the importance of um, the pharmaceutical and the dispersed nature of mind, you mentioned that one possible critical f- uh, framework for what we might think of as a kind of unflattening, right, of the biochemistry and biology mm-hmm. of SSRIs mm-hmm. can be offered through the idea of transference. You mm-hmm. say here, it's the transference that cures. Relationality mm-hmm here between two minds, between pills and the gut, between serotonin and words, between periphery and center, the transference and the, uh, that cures and the relationality here is formative. So can mm-hmm. we talk about this idea of transference as it mobilizes, um, as it critically mobilizes um, your tracking of these SSRIs? Yeah, so the, 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 that I go to the transference, which is a psychoanalytic term, um, in order to think about the relation between the pill and the body in more complex ways. So 
people tend to think that the body is somewhat passive to the chemical effects of the drug. So people who are against the use of these drugs will say, you're, you know, you're doing you're doing a damage to the body. People who advocate for the use of these drugs will say um, the reason why they work is that they they kind of act unilaterally, in this case in the synapse, to recalibrate how serotonin is being um, taken up um, in the synapse, and that that um, has a has a lifting cognitively of poor mood. So in those both critical and traditional models, the pill is kind of somewhat separate from the body. So we, th- we think of these as two separate things. The transference has a long history in psychoanalytic thinking that in the beginning is the patient simply projecting their fantasies onto the doctor or the analyst. It becomes in the contemporary scene a much more complex set of relations. And again here, this is where I'm completely indebted to the real subtlety and elegance and sophistication of contemporary clinical psychoanalytic work is that some of these thinkers, um, Thomas Ogden is the one that I use in this chapter, are thinking of the transference um, as a relation in which a relation which in the Steridian sense generates its terms. So you become a patient through the transference and you become an analyst through the transference. Uh, you don't pre-exist. So it's, there isn't a relation between two pre-existing entities. So for those people who've read Karen Barad, it's a, it's a similar kind of argument to that. Um, so the transference is a way of thinking about the clinical encounter and what what many contemporary analytic clinicians would say is that the the cure, although cure has got quite marks around it because there is no cure as such, but but the treatment is found in the transference. It's not found in the interpretations that the analyst might offer, nor is it really found in the catharsis on the side of the patient. It's found in this weird relation that you build every for 50 minutes once a week or five times a week. Um, and something about the analysis and the being in that strange relation has can have um, good effects for people who are in states of distress. So the psychoanalytic notion of transference is almost entirely psychological, although some of these people will talk about how the body feels in states of transference. So I want to talk about transference biologically. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if the body is minded, then there must be transferential states between parts of the body, between bodies. And when you put a drug in there, you do something really interesting to the kinds of relations that the body can enter into, both parts of the body with themselves, but also one body to another. Now, this interest in and concern with um, relationality in the pill actually really interestingly extends into the next chapter, where you're giving us a way to think about another kind of relationality, and that's the relation between the pill um, or a drug and the placebo. Mm-hmm. So after introducing um, the, the kind of placebo wars right around 2000, and I won't ask you to speak um, really substantively to that, but I just want to mark that for listeners um, who want some background on that, they can find that in Chapter 5 of the book, you um, offer a way of thinking about the entanglements of uh, the antidepressant placebo relationship and offer a way to think about the placebo as parasite. Can we think of drugs and placebos, the chapter asks, as having co-evolved and existing in a mutually beneficial alliance? In other Mm -hmm. words, every drug needs its placebo. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what you take to be the most important aspects of that um, in the context of this conversation? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the short way to say this is that I think a lot of people just skate right over what is interesting about placebo. So one of the, one of the um, it's kind of weird, and it's weird in that Ferencian Kleinian way we were talking about before. So one of the commonest things that, again, both biomedical people and critics of biomedical people will say is, oh, antidepressants, they, um, most of the effect is placebo. And actually, there's a study that just came out again just a couple of months ago. I thought this had kind of gone underground, and it seems to have been revivified again. So these people want to say the drugs have no effect. Um, it's your set of expectations that make you feel better. That, to me, is an absurd distinction to be making, as though the <coughs> excuse me, as though the um, psychic effects of taking a drug and the 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 um, trajectory of the drug in the body are two completely separable events. Um, so by the time I've set up all of this earlier stuff about the liver and the organs and all the rest of it, is that there's no point at which you can start to say that my expectations about the drugs and my hopes for the drugs are separate from biochemical effects. And the vast majority of biomedical research on antidepressants is trying desperately to keep these two things separate. And it's it's a fantasy. Um, I guess it's a fantasy that's allowed them to build fairly effective antidepressant drugs. But I think it's a f- it's 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 not a good account of why these drugs can be very effective for some kinds of people. So the, the so yes, the placebo Yes, there's a placebo effect. The placebo effect is the chemical effect. The chemical effect is the placebo effect. These are not two separate things. And the next chapter actually even further extends this into asking us to think about yet another kind of relation that, again, um, that's a relation between things that are mutually constitutive but also that are more entangled than I think um, most of us probably uh, understand. And this is the relation between poison and cure. Mm-hmm. And this is the chapter, chapter six, that looks at um, Derrida's exploration of the Greek term pharmakon um, to, or, to like help think about the ambivalence and ambiguity of remedies. And so from poison and cure, um, you offer a way here to think about how to denaturalize the distinction between a drug's effects and side effects. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And you say, you're, and in, particularly in the context of conversations about suicidal ideation, um, you offer a way again to think about these debates um, between kind of suicidal ideation and antidepressant use um, by reminding us here, or by asking us to consider here, again in the words of the book, um, that it's not clear at any point whether a particular event is beneficial or harmful, and this ambiguity is the basis for any successful intervention mm-hmm. in depressive state. So again, there's two important related but distinct claims here. One is this sort of ambiguity uh, around the benefit or harm of any individual event, but mm-hmm. also at the same time, the fact that this ambiguity is crucial mm-hmm. for any successful intervention. Um, so can you talk about that? Yeah, so this is this is where my you know strong conceptual debts both to deconstruction and to psychoanalysis um, you know play out. I think most clearly in the book is that you can't act without damaging. You can't move without damaging, and that the you know as I said before, the fantasy of trying to remove damage from the equation um, 
uh, is very constricting on how to think about what's actually going on, let's say, in the case of the ingestion of an antidepressant. So, you know, there's an enormous amount of literature now from various sectors who are concerned that antidepressants do damage, particularly to non-adults um, who might take them, so children and adolescents. When, when Prozac first came out in the market, there was a lot of concern that adults were being very psychologically damaged, agitated, um, could at the most extreme become murderous um, under the influence of these drugs. That seems to have died down a little bit um, and most of the current literature is that you shouldn't really be giving them to children or to adolescents um, because they appear to, there's some data to suggest that they appear to increase the suicidal ideation of those children or adolescents. Now, the field is empirically really contested. Um, there's a lot of, there's, there's this evidence to suggest that some people do become more agitated taking an antidepressant. But there's also a lot of evidence to suggest that um, adolescents who have taken antidepressants are less likely to kill themselves. They might become more agitated, but they're less likely to act on it. You don't see, um, let's say, heightened or unusual levels of antidepressant use in adolescents who have killed themselves. You don't see that autopsy data. So it's a very, very complex empirical field. And my feeling is that the that we need a bit more in the way of a conceptual framework to try and figure out what's going on. And that frame needs to understand that we can't protect people from agitation. We can't protect them from the drug. And that sometimes the drug is going to have an agitating, it's going to have adverse effects. Sometimes it's not. And that that's part of a bigger sense of the variegation, the heterogeneity of mind and of of biological substrata. So mm -hmm. uh, the cure is the damage. The damage is the cure. These are, these are not separate things. And also the drug is not just the pill, um, is not at all the pill that you hold in your hand. I mean, the, the yeah. chapter makes, I think, the, another really important point that the drug becomes a drug in um, in, its, in, uh, in the body. In, in transit, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Only when it's uh, dispersed through the gut and the liver yeah. and the system does it become psychopharmaceutical. And that, that, that would be a basic psychoanalytic point, right? Uh, sorry, a basic deconstructive point that objects don't exist, don't pre-exist their relations. Um, and while we've become very sophisticated about thinking about that, let's say, in relation to gender, um, that gender emerges through a set of cultural discursive relations, we're much less happy about thinking about that in terms of something like a drug. But yeah, an antidepressant becomes an antidepressant in its transferential relations to other drugs, to food, to parts of the body, to the clinical milieu in which it's been prescribed, um, to age, you know, that the age of the person matters, historical context, all of these things matter. So there's also, uh, there's a lot more in the book as well, um, but it also, the book ends us on a conclusion um, that raises some other issues. Now, we don't have time to talk about all of them, um, but you do open the conclusion with um, a conversation about relatively recent accounts of the mind-altering effects of gut bacteria um, that some listeners may actually have encountered as well. Mm -hmm. 
recently. Um, and so perhaps that's a good place to draw this to a conclusion. Um, so that, that's what I'll actually ask you to talk about. For You, you are very clear in the book that um, even though, you know, very generous people have emailed you articles about this, right? Well, they knew you were working on the book and um, there's clearly a relation. It's also not exactly the same thing. Um, it's not quite what you're describing in the book. So for you, can you talk about that case um, as it both... Um, or as a way to think about the maybe the thoughts that you want to leave us with as we come to the conclusion of our conversation about the book. Yeah, so this is a case of um, there's a lot of fairly conventional biomedical research now that's trying to say that what happens in the gut has effects on the mind. Uh, so this is in relation to bacteria, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that through the vagus nerve, the large nerve that connects the stomach to the brain, um, what goes on in the stomach might have effects on how mind works. And so, you know, people get very excited and they think, oh, look here, mind-body relations. But in in this instance, we're still dealing with mind being quarantined inside the brain, right? So the effect of the gut is at a distance and that mind is really only at stake when you've got yourself inside the skull. Mm-hmm. So... It's, a, it's an attempt here at the end of the book to kind of, I guess, put the problematic back into circulation. It's a very hard problematic. I don't, I don't want to claim that I have solved it because I think it's actually, we're so used to thinking, feminists are so used to thinking antibiologically. Everybody is so used to thinking of mind and body as separate substances. You can't just by fiat say, stop doing that <laughs> and, and let's, um, let's do something else. Like I think these, these separations, these, these dualisms are part of the way thought becomes possible. So you can't use thought to get rid of them, right? We're, we're caught in the play of them in ways that's not always negative. Um, and so the, the last, the conclusion is an attempt to, I don't know, to kind of be, to think as um, generously as possible about the failure of trying to do otherwise. Mm-hmm. Does, does that, does that make sense? Um, so it returns a little bit to the beginning about the fantasy that good intentions will get us out of problems, and I just profoundly do not believe that. Yeah, and that's and that's that's the importance of psychoanalysis for me. That if if the unconscious, which is full of highly conflicted, highly violent, highly distressing motivations, if the unconscious is part of why we do what we do, there's no way to quarantine that off so that we can be sure that our intentions are good and that they will lead to good outcomes. And, you know, as one's you know, grandparents might say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so it's like I'm not, I mean, while it's at some points a really complex conceptual or theoretical argument, the aphorism that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, we all know what that means. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. So, Elizabeth, I would love to talk with you for another couple of hours about this book, but um, unfortunately, we've come to our conclusion. Now, there's a whole bunch of material that we haven't had a chance to talk about. It's an extraordinarily rich and thoughtful study. Um, But given that, is there anything in particular that we haven't had a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? No, this is this has been a, a, a very enjoyable conversation, and can I say uh, thank you to you for doing such a wonderful job of um, reflecting 
these arguments back to me. I, I, I find myself listening to you thinking, oh, I did say that, didn't I? So you've done a wonderful job of um, uh, crystallizing what I've tried to do, and uh, thank you. That's 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 it's it's been it's been lovely to talk. Well, thank you. Um, so now that the book is out, uh, what what's currently inspiring you? What are you working on now? And um... uh, well, I'm actually working with a colleague of yours um, on a book. My interests are turning a little more psychological, um, and I'm working with Adam Frank, mm. who is at, who's in the English department at UBC, um, on an introduction to the work of the. Uh, American psychologist Sylvan Tompkins, who's who was a who has been you know much talked about in, in affect theory, much talked about but little read. So we're trying to put together a book that will help people find their way into his weird and wonderful universe. Like it's 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 really fantastic work that's been again kind of skated over a little bit too quickly. So we hope to get that finished in the coming months. Um, and I think way beyond this, I'm currently um, you know, much, much distracted by having to be chair of my department. Um, but, when, <laughs> Get it. but when that, that joy is, is behind me, I think I'm very interested. I have nothing further to say about this, but in, in my gut, if you like, I have a big interest in anti-psychiatry. There's something about those crazy texts from the 1960s, the R.D. Lang, the connection through to the French tradition, the um, uh, Guattari and things like that, that I'm very interested in trying to think carefully about how that wonderful, radical tradition of thinking psychologically disappeared out of feminist and queer politics um, to the extent that we tend to think of politics these days, usually in, in the realm of social theory. We tend not to think of it as a psychological thing, that psychological theories are usually thought of kind of individualizing and bourgeois um, and psychological theory is apolitical. Now, that wasn't always the case. In the, in the 60s and the 70s, um, the mind was a site of enormous political potential and I'm interested in going to look at those texts and seeing what I can extract from them. Well, best of luck with that and thank you for so much for taking time away from that work to talk with me today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank well, you. thank you. Thank you. It's been lovely to speak. You've been listening to new books in science, technology and society. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time. <laughs>